Just the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Um, Before we get started today, I would like to share some great news with you, our friends. We have now added a second week trip to Paris in June of 2020. (laughs) Because the first one sold out. Um, But if you'd like to tag along to tour all things fashion history with us in the City of Lights, you can head over to likemindstravel.com where there's lots more information and you can also register. And I think, Cass, if I'm correct, Laura told us that the second trip is already partially sold out, which is, is pretty amazing. <laughs> and we are so excited. We can't wait. Yes. So uh, this week, we're going to have our usual helping of fashion history, but we're going to serve it up with an extra side of rebellion. So <laughs> this sounds quite yummy to me. Totally my jam. Uh, (laughs) In the words of fashion designer Vivian Westwood, she said, quote, people didn't like you for being a punk. We wanted to undermine the establishment. We don't want to accept the values of this older generation. We hate it. We want to destroy it. We don't want it. We were youth against age. That's what it was. Yes, so today we talk about the subcultural styles of the punk movements as well as its commerce. So, you know, the intersection of rebellion, youth subculture dress, and then its subsequent co-option and commodification is not quite a new tale. In fact, it's a reoccurring theme throughout fashion history. You can trace instances at least back to the period surrounding the French Revolution, where you see the shocking anti-fashion styles that are adopted by the Incroyable and Marveilleuse, which in the case of the women members of this subculture, soon became high fashion. Yes, and we have already done a whole two-part episode on the role of fashion during the French Revolution. And the second part is actually entirely dedicated to the Encroyables and Merveilleuse. So check that out if you'd like to learn more. And I think there's some really interesting parallels in how both of these groups used clothing to inspire shock and awe. Yes, and in the case of the punks of the 70s and 80s, the materiality of their radical clothing choices played a huge role in their style, which really aggressively confronted mainstream sensibilities. So, you know, they made use of safety pins, metal studs, locks and chains, which really held connotations of force and violence. Punks adopted ripped and torn garments, whether worn to the point of disintegration or intentionally distressed. And another key element was really this do-it-yourself ethos. So, Celebrating the crafting of -of one-of-a-kind garments really as a way to define one's own personal style that was used a lot within punk culture. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, Cass, but when I think of early punk, the first thing that pops into my brain are are mohawks. Right. (laughs) And I do realize that this association might be a little bit stereotypical, but hair was and remains a really important element of punk style. You know, the more outrageous, the better, the more brightly colored, the better. And if you've ever wondered about the history of Manic Panic, we're going to chat a little bit about that today, too. 
Yes, today, Dr. Monica Sklar joins us to speak about her work on punk style and the business of being punk. She is an assistant professor in the College of Family and Consumer Sciences at the University of Georgia and liaison to the historic costume and textile collection housed there. Dr. Sklar, welcome to the show. Monica, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and we are super excited to talk to you today about punk style. And this has been the subject of your scholarly inquiry for more than a few years. The first thing that I want to ask you is, because I do think this is pertinent to the subject at hand, how did you first come to be interested in punk style? Well, in general, I would say that my interest started on a personal level. Yeah, I guess that's what I was kind of trying to get at. (laughs) Yes. That I have been an active part of the punk community in the United States, but also to some degree internationally for 25 years or more. And in doing so, one of the things that I recognized as going to shows, writing zines, playing in bands, traveling and sleeping on people's couches and engaging with people that lived alternative lifestyles around the country and were contrarian and anti-authoritarian and questioning things was that the style component, the visual component was always really grabbing my attention as much or more than the sounds and the music, even though I'm a huge music fan. Mm -hmm. It's some people, they'll they'll meet me and they'll chat me up and they're like, are you a music professor? I'm like, no, I'm actually a fashion professor. (laughs) But I'm a huge, huge music fan, including punk music of many incarnations. But the more I engaged in punk as a personal lifestyle, the more I was realizing that I could read all the music biographies I wanted. I could have so many great conversations with people in person, on the phone, electronically, around the globe, about the ideas. But so few people were talking about the visuals, and yet everybody was wearing something offbeat or retro or meaningful or a t-shirt that made a statement or a patch that was an homage to their favorite band or their favorite show or They had their hair done in an interesting way. And all of that was grabbing me so much Mm -hmm. that as I got more and more into scholarly pursuits of fashion, I was realizing that those two things could merge. And I had been interested in fashion since I was a small child, then got interested in punk, then eventually went to school for fashion and then realized I could be going to school for punk and fashion. And so... It all kind of came together to the point of me writing my book a few years ago and then now writing a new book. Yeah, exactly. And your new book is not out yet. So we're not going to, we're going to chat about what that is about a little bit at the end of the episode. But um, for now, I think we're going to kind of like weave into the first book which is called Punk Style. And in Punk Style, one of the very first things you talk about is this really interesting anecdote of you visiting an Amish community, and you had what I thought was a really interesting exchange with the gentleman that was conducting the tour. So would you be willing to share parts of this story with our listeners? Because I think this kind of fleshes out where we're going. Sure. Um, Well, I want to take one step back and say that while I wrote Punk Style to be somewhat of an academic text, 
I didn't want it to be dry. I wanted it to have the vibrancy and the life and the energy that is punk. And I also feel that when you're dealing with subculture or insular cultures of any community, that there's value. I'm a big fan of subjective scholarship over objective scholarship. I, I'm a big fan of, of write what you know and find out more. Right. And so that said, I thought it was really important for readers that I started every chapter with my own anecdote so I could share what I could bring to that chapter and what that chapter might mean to me and why I wanted to dive in. And so the chapter you're referring to is chapter two of Punk Style about the history of why punks dress the way they do. How did it start? What do they look like? So in relation to that, I have a best friend since I was a kid. And every single year we travel together since 1996. And we, tra- we canvassed the United States. We've been to 49 states. And Alaska is the one that <laughs> everybody always asks. <laughs> so in going to those 49 states and sharing all this time, we drive, we get in the car and we get out old school maps and we just try to learn about the culture and we talk to people and we look at what they're wearing and we eat what they're eating and we go where they go and we've canvassed every road in this country. And so one of the things we did is we went to Amish country in Pennsylvania and in typical tourist fashion, we bought our day passes to go and ride buggies around in, it was probably Lancaster or somewhere similar, and learn about Amish life as best we could. I mean, I, we recognize that when you pay an admission fee such right. as that, <laughs> you're, you're getting the kind of prepackaged what a community wishes to show you. Hey, punk does the same. But we paid our admission and we hopped in the buggy and in driving around and we're asking all these questions and learning about their community and their values and their aesthetics. And toward the end of the tour, a couple hours passed, the man who is driving the buggy turned to me and he's like, okay, can I ask you something? This is a couple decades ago. And if you don't know what I look like, I have black bangs and facial piercing. And I sometimes, I usually have black hair. There's sometimes colors in it. And at the time I wore a lot of retro clothes, but also tank tops. And I have some tattoos and such. So the man turns to me and he's like, can I ask you something? I'm like, yeah, sure. He's like, I go into town occasionally, the bigger city. And he's like, I really wonder why do you wear what you wear? I don't understand your community. And I'm like, really? I just paid 50 bucks to learn all about your community and why you wear what you wear. And the two of us just sat in the buggy and shot the breeze about why the other one, why he has his beard, why I have my facial piercing, you know, why does he wear the hat? Why do I pierce, uh, you know, this, this and that and tattoo this and that and color my hair. And it ended up being super hallmarky that that would happen. <laughs> but at the same time, it drove a lot of points home for both of us because we're both in fairly private communities that the outside world has ideas about and we have our own ideas about and we have to kind of meet in the middle of people's perceptions and what we want to communicate to our fellow people in the community, what we wish to communicate outward and how nonverbal communication works for both of our groups. Yeah. One of the things that really touched me about this story was the fact that like, you know, we start every episode by saying like, 
we all have one thing in common, seven billion people in the world. We all have one thing in common. We all get dressed. And so like when I read that in your book, I was like, mm-hmm, see? And and everyone is curious about that in each other. And what does it mean? You know, and, and what he was asking you is what does it mean? And and you were there paying for a tour by trying to find out what it means. And it's just this um innate curiosity that we all have about the way each other dresses and what does it mean? Yeah, I think that was one of my favorite opportunities to really dive into that. I travel extensively and I aspire to travel more internationally to continue these conversations. Yeah. Well, and you also just said like um, traveling internationally. And and one of the other things that I want to bring up about dress is like when you think about being somewhere else and the way that other people dress, sometimes dress has this tendency to underscore quote unquote otherness. But in the context of punk, I think that otherness isn't necessarily like in the context of being a person from a different country, but punk is an intentional otherness. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? That is a big question. Um, And as I've been doing research to understand how that's manifested in the United States, specifically and looking into boutiques and looking into the DIY culture, looking into big mall stores and e-commerce, one of the things that I'm realizing is how complicated it is when a community such as punk comes up with all these visual cues, whether it's hair color, whether it's studs and spikes, whether it's logos from bands that were ways to communicate otherness, but then those things become mainstream. And so how you keep othering yourself on purpose so that you can find people who share your outsider views, but at the same time, you're purposefully positioning yourself is not the same. And one thing that I've been learning is that for a lot of punks, it seems to be less and less about the actual colors and shapes and cues and more about the process of how did they get the clothes and who did they wear the clothes with? And where did they go to wear those things? And how were those things made? And so the othering is sort of been a fun thing to look at regarding fashion because it's sort of twofold. It's fashion of what it looks like, but it's also fashion of how it's made and embodied. Right. Is the othering of of what can make the same jeans punk or not punk. So in terms of where did that come from? Like what's the origins of that? I think a lot of it were some of the original style leaders within the community, whether they're designers, whether they're boutique owners, whether they're people in performance, such as bands or other types of theatrical or musical groupings, people who are political leaders within the community. And so there's, they kind of lead the way often of what the visuals will be after or what the process will be after of how people get or wear their clothes. I think a lot of people out there assume that punk style evolved out of the music scene, but there's a little bit of a chicken and the egg debate about this, right? Well, and it's sort of a UK-US discussion as well. Yeah. So let's have that discussion. (laughs) Okay. So punk in the US, punk in the UK, punk around the world, it's one enormous community, but it's also 
an umbrella term that means so many things and has gone on for a long, long time, late 60s, early 70s. And so there's so many niche communities underneath it, including a lot of musical figures that have been incredibly important and fabulous and meaningful and revolutionary. Okay, so that said, there were also a ton of visual leaders who were making designs and running boutiques and coming up with clothes and coming up with art movements. And that's true of graphic design, too. And there's some great books and scholars of punk graphic design. And that all of these arts, whether it's the music arts, whether it's the visual arts, these were all forms of self-expression. There's there's punk chefs. There's people who live a punk lifestyle, but maybe don't have some of these other visual or sonic components. And so the idea that punk is only centralized in a music output is narrowing an entire lifestyle down to one of its components. So would you expand upon what you just said? Because I think that's really fascinating. So when you say that, like, limiting a punk lifestyle to just the music or just the fashion, what are all the other components to the lifestyle? So what are the components to a punk lifestyle really depends on how one self-identifies as punk. So one of the things with my research, whether it's my first book, whether it's the book I'm writing now, any of the articles I am into, any of my personal life, I really think self-identifying within any community is incredibly important and the key to, well, humanity. But that said, um, there's it's an umbrella term. There's niche communities in it. And so a skate punk might be leading a slightly different lifestyle than a crusty punk, than an emo punk from the 90s, than a hardcore kid. And I mean, hardcore kids often don't use the word punk. You know, someone who's straight edge and someone who's a drunk punk, you know, maybe you'll end up at the same place, maybe not, you know, of, of hanging out on a Friday night. So what exactly are the key components, I think, are really up to those people and if they feel they self-identify as punk. But if you wanted to get down to what frequently gets lumped into definitions, it generally has to do with full lifestyle communities that are about an ethos that challenges societal norms, challenges boundaries, whether it's political, whether it's beauty standards, whether it's how economy functions. And then it's manifested in the humanities, such as music and fashion and the way we live our lives. So someone can be full on domestic middle class conventional occupation and very legitimately self-identify as punk, whereas someone with a very completely different lifestyle wouldn't necessarily get that name allocated to them automatically. I think it's about this ethos, this energy. Usually it ends up about wanting to be part of the community in one manner or another, mm-hmm. in person, electronically, visually, sonically, something tying to that lineage and to each other. And and I think that's, I mean, not entirely, but in part, what defines a subculture. Yeah. Right. And that's some of the differences that get complicated of subculture versus street style, because street style, there's a lot of adaptations of punk within street style, but street style is so much more individual and about the stylistic components versus subculture is about the culture components and that it's sub it's it's quote unquote below the mainstream but the hierarchical nature is a little bit in air quotes there you know 
I'd like to turn our discussion for a brief moment on to two of the people who were kind of at the epicenter of this subculture when it started in the late 70s, early 80s. And that would be Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren. Um, Because I very recently watched the Vivian Westwood documentary that came out, I think it was last year. Um, But she, while being interviewed, says, quote, we invented punk Malcolm, and she means Malcolm McLaren, who was her partner at the time. She says, Malcolm had just come back from America. He'd been managing the New York Dolls. He'd put together a group, a pop group, from our Saturday boy, Glenn. And I think what she means by that is that he worked at the shop that they were running. Glenn Matlock. Yeah. And a couple of our other customers. And Johnny Rotten was quite a phenomenon, and he hasn't changed, end quote. And of course... Johnny Rotten, as we most of us know, or almost all of us know, is the lead singer of the Sex Pistols. So, Monica, there was always this component of the music and the fashion being there entwined hand in hand. And that this was kind of like, you know, you said to me earlier that like punk started in the 60s, but this fashion and music thing started to happen in the 70s. Yes. Am I incorrect? I guess what I'm trying to ask you is what was Westwood and McLaren's role in the punk scene? Um, The reason I said the 60s as a proud Detroiter. <laughs> oh, because of Iggy Pop. Iggy Pop and the MC5. <laughs> yes. So that I really think or that Iggy Pop and the MC5 and everything that was going on around those scenes in Ann Arbor and Detroit should get credit or at least some credit for being the true origin stories. And much of what was going on in New York predated much of what was going on in the United Kingdom. As I made reference to earlier, in New York, there was more a focus on music and lifestyle, Mm -hmm. and there weren't quite as many design-oriented people at the forefront of the community. There were definitely design-oriented people participating in the community. There were definitely people who had key elements of the style, such as the New York Dolls or Richard Hell kind of famously credits himself with the use of the safety pin and his distressed clothes. And that's a little bit of a debated history itself. But a lot of that predated Westwood and McLaren. Now, I am a big fan of Westwood, not of Johnny Rotten, um, but I am a big fan of Westwood. So I would never disparage her. But I think saying that they invented punk, it's too abbreviated because the inklings of punk were already really, really there. Whether you say Detroit, whether you say many other cities, and especially if you say New York. So including some of the visuals, which then McLaren would look at in New York and bring back to the UK. One of the big differences between the UK and the US is that in the UK, Westwood was a designer. And I don't mean that she was an interloper into the scene and used the clothing. No, I mean, she was an active part of the scene. She was a boutique owner later on, whether it was Let It Rock and then Sex and Seditionaries, the stores that they had. They were involved in subculture, the Teddy Boy subculture, then leading into the punk subculture very early and incorporating subculture and design hand in hand. Because they were really interested in the situationists who predated them as a social 
political subcultural movement who were trying to communicate actively through writing on their clothes and other things of that nature. And so in the UK, there were more players in the scene who were incorporating art design and owning stores. In the US, there was Titian Snooky of Manic Panic, and there were a few others who were fabulously innovative, but they weren't necessarily getting as much attention from the press as Westwood and McLaren were getting. And eventually Westwood's career would grow and blossom into the career it should be, which is uh, she's a uh, remarkably acclaimed, established designer that's exactly in the position she should be with all of that acclaim. And thankfully, she maintains her contrarian, sassy nature. That <laughs> and original images from photos that I bought while I was in England from uh, from her creating some of the designs for sex. But at Westwood and McLaren would draw from motorcycle culture. They would draw from fetish and S&M culture, whether it was finding the pyramid studs, the silver pyramid studs that would become so iconic in punk. And now you can see them on every Tory Burch shoe and Valentino handbag. And they would be incredibly important in incorporating things like writing all over clothes and distressing clothes, finding those design elements because they were in design. You know, it's not, it's not to say that they, that that was the origins of punk, because punk is a lifestyle, punk is a music. Punk, as some of its other design elements, such as those that would become incredibly popular in the United States, like motorcycle jackets and Chuck Taylors, those did not get generated out of the UK design aesthetic. Right. Absolutely. Well, you brought up like a, a little bit about Malcolm and Vivian. And one of the things that you talked about in your book that I thought was particularly interesting was that DIY style in terms of the kind of clothes that they were making. Even though they were making fashion, it might just be that one turning point of their stores from turning from Teddy Boy style to punk was, um, do you want to talk about the Viva La Rock t-shirts? So Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood had a store called Let It Rock, which was primarily oriented toward the rockabilly or the aging teddy boy community, kind of a retro themed community. And they had an overrun of t-shirts for a concert, these Viva La Rock t-shirts. And they, they had too many of them after a show. And so they were starting to transition into what would become the punk mantra anyway. With their son, they took these shirts and they cut them up and kind of inspired by New York style, cut them up and distressed them. I mean, according to my interviewees, they had their son take little trucks into paint and drive them over the shirts and chop them up and then sell them in this new format of this really butchered shirt. And some would say that that's the first punk shirt, knowingly so. Right. That punks or people that would become known as punk were obviously wearing shirts <laughs> prior to that. And so any shirt then is effectively a punk shirt if a punk is wearing it. But they were creating what could be a, a design inspired by the ethos that would then inspire the next round of people who sees it to copy it or do something of that nature Kind of like you hear your favorite band and you kind of want to sound like them because they sound fabulous. It's just you see someone who looks amazing and you're not necessarily copying them to 
be their clone, but because you just feel that same view on life that they feel. And so when people saw those chopped up shirts, they were like, that's next. That's new. That's where things are going. That's the new thing. I love so much this intersection of was it DIY? Was it fashion? Does it even freaking matter? Like, it's fabulous. And everyone knew it was fabulous in that moment. And they're like, we're in. Well, DIY would go on to become incredibly important in subculture, in many, many different subcultures. But punk really has a strong connection to do it yourself, which is what DIY stands for. And there's so much interest in DIY in many of the facets of punk, whether it's hardcore, emo, or crust punks, or uh, we're making your own t-shirts through learning the process of silk screening, making one inch buttons, buying your own button press. Later on, as we would have Etsy and maker fairs and the rebirth of modern craft, a lot of that is taking on the appreciation of DIY that many punks had gone for, which, I mean, you could harken back to the arts and crafts movement a hundred years prior, but, or not quite a hundred years, but, you know, many, 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 many moons prior. And punk just stripping things down to DIY and saying that this experiential process of, I don't want to buy everything that everyone else has. I want to make it because part of what makes a garment punk is the process of making the garment. And that's not to say that everyone who's into punk is a craftsperson. I'm not a craftsperson. I have a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in fashion, and I can't sew, which often surprises people. Same. <laughs> it's making can be in how you assemble things. That's DIY at its heart, right? I mean, DIY can be that you take a Sharpie marker and draw all over something. So bricolage, the idea that you assemble things together to make a new thing, is a core tenet of punk. I mean, it's it's idea in your mind, you assemble a new set of values, you assemble a new set of ideas, you look at the world through your lens and other people's lenses at the same time. It's postmodernism at its core. And so in clothing, bricolage makes a ton of sense in being in conjunction with DIY of whether it's that you're physically making things, you're silk screening patches, you're making t-shirts, you're making one inch buttons, you're cutting up sweatshirts, but it can be about assemblage too. The idea of the use of vintage that you're repurposing all of these vintage items and giving them a new life by putting them together in new applications or that you're putting together mainstream products and uh, alternative products at the same time. And when they're together as an ensemble, they make something altogether new for the wearer. You've done a lot of interviews with um, people in the punk scene in your book, and they say again and again and again, it's not necessarily the exact garment. There's no formula. It's about the way that you wear it. It's the way that you put it together. And that's what like the language is. There are some things that have become common, usually because the singer in a band or the owner of a boutique or someone who's really got some very thoughtful ideas and knows how to articulate them in a form of a social leader wears things a certain way. Or sometimes it's 
out of function, like a lot of skate punk style and it's, it's comfortable, loose, oversized style and the particular shoes comes out of functionality or it's a lot of the skinny jeans or androgynous garments. A lot of these things come out of functionality of where the purpose is trying to go. But that said, there's a lot of different things you can wear to be functional. So there'll be somebody who's kind of leading the way design wise to say, okay, well, small tops and big bottoms are the way to go or skinny jeans and oversized shirts are the way to go or pyramid studs all over everything or silk screened things that there, there are trends even within subculture. And there's definitely different looks within different communities. So, I mean, when you talk about Westwood and McLaren, I generally go to the idea of what gets dubbed a 77 punk, which is that kind of iconic British mohawked motorcycle jacket, the Perfecto Sporto kind of jackets and the disheveled, but a lot of color at the same time and metal. And it's a certain look where I'm like, oh, it's a 77 punk. And you can kind of think you can know a little bit about their ideology, what music they probably listen to, what kind of things they do on the weekend versus a hardcore kid might look of the 90s, for example, might look completely different than that. And a punk of today shopping at Hot Topic might look completely different than that. And so I think that bricolage is a way that people pull things together to create their own definitions of DIY. We are going to take a short sponsor break here, but more with Dr. Sklar when we come back. Welcome back. Monica, before the break, you mentioned that there are different looks worn by different punk communities, and your upcoming book looks at this in the retail landscape within the United States. Can you tell us a little more about this? I've interviewed over 20 boutique owners across the country that I thought were punk boutique owners, but many of them talk about they were actually trying to serve the entire subculture community. So they are seeing it as one thing. Many of them. So the sibling subculture thing is kind of interesting because I think it's continuing to be a conundrum within punk and the mainstream of how to wrestle with wanting to wear the same stuff. What do you mean by wanting to wear the same stuff? Because a lot of punk things end up with a certain social cachet and there's a, an adoption of that social cachet, whether the lifestyle is adopted to or not. Within fashion, usually. Like, think about Marc Jacobs. Grunge collection. Think about, like, you know, there was just an exhibition of punk. Uh, what was it? Punk Chaos to Couture exhibition at the Costume Institute? There was. And so Marc Jacobs' 1991 Perry Ellis collection about grunge is one of his most famous collections. And he got hand from Perry Ellis for doing that collection. It was a super complicated moment because 1991 is when Nirvana and so many of their contemporaries gained wide recognition. And Marc Jacobs, to be fair, came from dance culture and queer culture and, and a certain elements of New York downtown culture. And so for him to do grunge for Perry Ellis, and the way he did it was not that well received and, and wasn't necessarily a fit. But Mark Jacobs, as having any relationship to, maybe he didn't have a relationship to grunge of the Pacific Northwest interpretation of how, how they would develop that style. 
but he wasn't a total bad guy. I mean, I like Marc Jacobs. And I think that that whole moment was really complicated because it was one of the first times in that era that subculture and the mainstream collided hardcore. I mean, Nirvana was truly an underground band that all of a sudden was everywhere. So for Marc Jacobs to take an underground style and put it on the catwalk, when here we were talking about Westwood a few minutes ago, doing the same thing. It is complicated. And in the end, I think it boils a lot down to intent and the intent of the wearer, the intent of the viewer, and the kind of sincerity of interest in the garments and what they could mean. But it's super dicey to think that one community owns a style when a style such as punk is often using bricolage to develop through pre-existing garments. So I definitely think that there is such a thing as cultural appropriation. And I definitely think there's such a thing as authenticity. And I remember walking out of a Fred Siegel upscale boutique in Los Angeles in near tears one day because they had white men's undershirts with clash records and fatigues on their mannequins. And I was like, no, my, <laughs> my idea of subculture is being sold at $200 a tank top. And I was devastated and sat in my car and kind of shed a tear because I was still really young and didn't understand that. Fashion will always subsume anti-fashion. The fashion cycle is a complicated thing. <laughs> and that a lot of these things can exist at the same time. But, you know, I have a new piece that's coming out about how the silhouettes of punk move into the mainstream, such as baggy clothes, small clothes, skinny jeans, all these things, those move back and forth between the mainstream and subculture much easier than the symbols of subculture. Because the symbols of subculture, like the actual band logos or things of that nature, those people feel so much more emotional connection to. And when the symbols move into the mainstream, then people get upset, way more upset than when the silhouettes move, because there's a certain even though the silhouettes might have been created for the same function that the symbol was created, the symbol often can be pointed much closer to one experience or one relationship or one thought process versus the silhouette might have had also to do with just function of the times and general fashion of the times. But that said, I mean, as I wrote my first book, because I and I'd found a citation, so I didn't come up with this research, but that the Ramones have sold way more T-shirts than records. So that Arturo Vega circular, uh, their their icon that is so popular, the black T-shirt, there's way more people wearing Ramones shirts than listen to Ramones records. But I don't know. You have to debate. Is that so wrong? Or are they somehow still latching on to what the Ramones mean in society? And that's its own whole conversation about why are they choosing to latch on to it? Speaking directly to that point is the fact that you actually talk about how punk was never entirely immune to success on the capitalist market. Um, and, and when I say that, I mean punk style. Um, because, you know, there are stores, like you already mentioned, Manic Panic, which has a fascinating history, and I'm hoping you'll tell us a little more about that. But then, of course, you have the ubiquitous Hot Topic. 
and other mass retailers that began emerging onto the market to, to, you know, to capitalize on the cool, you know, the subcultural cool of the punk scene starting in the late 80s. So would you tell us a little bit more about this? Because this does tie into your new research. Sure. My new research is on the United States and on punk merchandising. And by punk merchandising, I mean the production and the consumption of the clothes. Then the who, what, where, and why. It's a history book and series of articles and presentations and websites and hopefully exhibition and so many other fun things. Manic Panic. I'm a big fan of Tish and Snooki, who famously a lot of people know Manic Panic as the, the sort of gelatinous hair gel in the tub that you can put on your hair and it'll dye your hair if you bleach it out right. And it'll also get all over your clothes and your pillows and everything else. But they have made that into an enormous cosmetics industry that's been incredibly important to spread and give access to the desire to have more variation in, in beauty standards such as changing the color of one's hair and other cosmetics that they sell. But Manic Panic started as one of the first punk boutiques in the country. And it was in New York. Trash and Vaudeville was also in New York. Both of these were on St. Mark's Place. Shout out to Jimmy. Ah, there you go. Well, Ray and Dang. Shout out to Ray and Dang as well. Um, the owners, who I just did a wonderful interview with and and I really appreciate the time that they gave me telling me their punk heritage, including being the people that really launched the black skinny jean, which many of the other boutique owners across the country that I've spoken with have said was incredibly important in launching their own boutiques, being the one place in town that sold skinny black jeans. And often they would get them from Ray and Dang at Trash and Vaudeville. Manic Panic was down the street. And they were creating a really funky style, too. And so there were these boutique owners popping up all around the country. They would be the people in town that would create these safe spaces for subcultural people, not just punks, but goths and romantics and skaters and, and all different people that would pop up in different incarnations of subculture would come to these boutiques and hang out. I remember I did as a teen for hours and hours and meet each other and form bands and learn how to dress, learn how to talk, learn what to listen to, learn what's going on on a Friday night that isn't in your local paper, but is happening in a basement somewhere. And so these boutiques became hubs of culture. And I started doing my research, learning about these important boutiques. And in doing so, I've grown the research to learn more about the process of how punk clothing is constructed, wh what the supply chain is, where do people actually get things, why do they get them there, and how do they put them together? Because often things get made by groups of friends in a garage or by groups of friends going shopping at a vintage store. So I am telling the story of all these boutiques, but also about the story of the experience of putting together these clothes. And this is an incredibly important, like, part of the community. So you had made mention of Hot Topic and the fact that Hot Topic is kind of a contentious thing within the punk community in thinking about its relationship to bringing these this punk aesthetic to a wider audience. However, in my research, I did interview some of the people that were the founders of Hot Topic and have spent a lot of time with them. And I've also been interviewing people who hold that view that Hot Topic was 
the moment that their indie boutique failed or Hot Topic was the moment that their insular community was the bubble was burst and everyone knew about it. And they do have that negative view. However, from Hot Topic's point of view, that wasn't their intention. And and I I haven't landed on an opinion about it. But I can just say from a research perspective, they say that wasn't their intention, that their intention was access and that they would purposefully put their stores often in malls that were pushed out. And I've heard from people who've said that Hot Topic was their only access. I mean, this predates the internet. So I see what you're getting at. They're like, we're trying to bring this to communities that are not being served in terms of like having access to this type of subculture. Right. In a way that the internet would do later on. And so in some respects, I grew up with the, the mall punk is a negative thing and I don't want my community commodified. That was my perspective. Mm -hmm. However, as I've grown more familiar with different perspectives, I think it's a little more complicated than that in terms of, yes, there is definitely the commodification of underground community. And some would say Hot Topic did that, but others would say they did not. And that in fact, what they did was provide access to people who did not know how to get those garments. They didn't know how to find others who were like-minded, that the stores did serve, even though they were in a mall, did serve that same safe space a warm environment that a boutique would that I used to go to in some pushed out neighborhood. So I think thinking of Hot Topic in a one-sided way isn't necessarily giving it its due of how complicated it really is in punk's history. The bigger issue with Hot Topic, I think, is the fact that so many of the underground boutiques couldn't compete against that bigger business model. Right. Which is where things like Etsy come in. And so it would circle around when e-commerce became more accessible for people to be individually participatory in e-commerce, like such as with Etsy. So the story of Hot Topic, I think, is quite an interesting moment in the story of punk merchandising. Monica, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to ever come back and join us again to talk about what you're up to next, please do so. Thanks. I, I think the, the thing that's been really fun for me to think about has been the fact that as much as circling back to one of your first questions about the music versus the fashion, mm-hmm. and I love the music so much, but often the music has a finite time and place. It's a three-minute song. It's a one-hour show. It's a 30-minute car ride. It's a, it's a half-hour jam session, whatever it is. But the clothes are all day, every day. They're 24-7. Monica, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the integral role of clothing in the punk lifestyle. So I guess for better or worse, in terms of authenticity, April, the punk aesthetic has been a constant source of inspiration for high fashion as well. Westwood, of course, and other designers like Zandra Rhodes who in 1977 launched her Conceptual Sheet Collection. And this collection has actually been cited as the first luxury fashion collection to incorporate the punk aesthetic. And Rhodes created knit jersey dresses with artfully placed holes, with finely finished edges, and the dresses were embellished with beaded and jeweled safety pins, thin ball chains, and even rhinestones. 
Yes, and she was doing this far before Versace in the 90s, I would just like to say. And one of my favorite, all-time favorite dresses is from that um, conceptual chic collection, Cass. And get this, it's a wedding dress. It is a punk wedding dress. It's a bluish, (laughs) yeah, it's a bluish white rayon and has a large bow on one shoulder. But the asymmetric skirt and train are both beautifully ripped and torn and all the edges are like super finely finished. And the entire textile is scattered with crystals. it's, it's really breathtaking. And there's a version of it in the collection of the Costume Institute at the Met. Which, speaking of, the Costume Institute had an entire exhibition that I think you mentioned briefly, April Punk, Chaos to Couture. That was in 2013. And that exhibition really charted Punk's influence on high fashion, which, when you said ripped beautifully, kind of sums up high fashion's incorporation yeah. of punk aesthetic. But... So that exhibition featured designs by a whole host of designers who have riffed on elements of anti-establishment styles. This included, as you just said, Versace, but also Ricardo Tisci, Jean Galliano, Karl Lagerfeld, and Comme des Garçons. Yeah, and, and one could argue that punk's legacy can be seen in the subsequent rise of deconstructionism, which took shape in the hands of Japanese designers like Rei Kawakubo and Junya Watanabe of Comme des Garçons. And, and so much of postmodern fashion can really trace its roots back to the non-conforming styles of the punks. And like Monica said earlier, you know, it's everywhere now, um, you know, from the studs on your Tory Burch shoes to maybe the studs or the metal hardware on your new favorite handbag. Well, I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you all consider incorporating a little rebellion into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Please join us on Thursday for our Fashion History Mystery Minisode, where we answer listener questions. If you have a question you'd like to submit, you can DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. You can also email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. As always, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.